I'd really like to thank all of you for um, trusting in your leaders and um, allowing me to stand here today before you to deliver um, God's word. It's an honor and thank you very much. So the theme for Freedom Village Church this year is Behold, as in Behold Our God. And the different topics in the Behold series each focus on a promise from God. And today I'd like for us to behold on the promise that God gives us eternal life. So I grew up in a Christian family and my parents were missionaries and they still are serving the Chinese people. But I really met God and started following him seriously only about four years ago. And before that, I would blame my parents and, and God um, for how miserable I was growing up, um, moving a lot, um, difficulty making friends, uh, just being very shy, uh, not being able to adjust, and felt like I couldn't do uh, anything that I wanted to do. Uh, nothing was going for me in my life. And when I was a senior in high school, however, um, things were picking up, you know. Um, there were a few kids who knew my name um, in New Jersey. Um, so I was finally getting some momentum. Uh, but my family had to suddenly leave the States uh, to come here to Korea. And I remember um, sitting on the plane, uh, looking out the window, and then firmly deciding um, that I would not follow God anymore, that I would do whatever I wanted to do from that moment on. And that began um, my 10-year rebellion against God. Um, I still went to church because I was born and raised in a Christian family, uh, but I still wanted to do anything that I wanted to do, right? chasing pleasures. And during that period, I used to play this reality check game where I would ask myself from time to time, like, hey, if I die now, would I, would I go to heaven? And you know, there'd be no contest. I'd confidently say yes every time. I will go to heaven. But during the last two, three years or so, um, I had stopped going to church completely, and I was living in, in deep, deep sin. And one day I asked myself, the same question, and I couldn't, I couldn't really say yes uh, right away. Uh, and I was surprised. It shocked me because I never really considered myself not going to heaven and going to hell. I just never thought of it that way. But I knew that it was because of the way I was living that it didn't sit right uh, to call myself a Christian. Now, the point of this story is to show you how I was understanding eternal life. Um, back then, eternal life was uh, living forever in heaven after I die. And until a month ago, eternal life was being resurrected when Jesus returns um, and then living forever in God's presence in heaven. But as I studied this topic, I found that eternal life is so much richer and life-giving. Uh, it's probably you know, because I'm still a young buck. Uh, but how I see the Bible, how I see the Christian walk, um, how I understand God, uh, has all changed. 
And so I'm really excited uh, to share this message with you today. And my prayer is that we will be thirsty for eternal life now. Today's message comes from 1 John. Now, 1 John is a wonderful letter full of uh, loving care and encouragement. And it's written by the Apostle John. And it's one of those letters that you just want to maybe keep at your desk or you know, put in your back pocket and carry around with you so you can take it out and read it again and again. It's also timely to be preaching 1 John because um, so much of 1 John and John's gospel um, overlap. And there's so much similarity, not just in terms of style and vocabulary, but also with the teachings and the themes. Um, so if you read John's gospel first and then 1 John, you'll get this uncanny feeling like, hey, I, I've read this before. This sounds familiar. And even the reason that John gives for writing these two books are almost the same. In John 20, 31, John writes, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you see the pattern here? Right. Believe, believe in Jesus, the Son of God, and have life or eternal life. Because we should keep in mind that John uses life and eternal life interchangeably. John clearly emphasizes that having eternal life is the result of believing. In Jesus, and it seems to be a very important part of the gospel. But notice that John's gospel is written for people to have eternal life. First John is written for people to know that they have eternal life. And why does John need to remind believers that they have eternal life? It's something they already have. See, John wrote this letter to the churches in the area of Ephesus because false teachers had seriously disturbed the church. These false teachers claimed to know and love God, but their teachings and the way they lived didn't reflect that at all. On top of that, they ended up leaving, and those who remained in the church were shaken up, so much so that John writes to reassure and encourage them, not because they've lost eternal life, but because they should abide in what they already have. And basically, John's message in his letter is that when we abide in God, we have eternal life. It's a message that we need to hear today because we also get shaken up in our faith. We get, we get swayed by others. We get confused. We get lost sometimes. And don't even... Don't even get me started on, on how many times I forget the good news of salvation because it's in the past for me and something else is going on in my life right now. See, nobody's immune to this. And if you're going through a difficult time right now, having difficulty with your faith, or it's a dry season for you, then please listen. Hear this message of reassurance for you that when we abide in God, we have eternal life. 
And for this message to even be encouraging, we need to know what eternal life is. So what is it? What is eternal life? Eternal life is to be in a life-giving relationship with God in His presence forever. And to break this down, we're going to start with Genesis. And don't worry, it's, it's only 50 chapters, okay? And then we're going to work our way to 1 John and, and hang out there just a little bit. And then, um, why not? We'll just do the whole New Testament too, okay? So, go ahead, cancel your dinner plans. And, uh, eternal life is forever. So the first piece is that eternal life is forever. After Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Now, we know that the punishment and curse is because of their disobedience, but do you know why they're kicked out of Eden? It's because they might take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So living forever would have been the reward for obedience but Adam's disobedience led to more sin, brokenness, and death. But it's not just immortality that was lost as a result of disobedience. Because of all the blessings that a flawless Adam and Eve had in a flawless Garden of Eden, what was the greatest blessing that they had? They had a flawless relationship with God. You know how you realize just how much you want something once you no longer have it? Like you can, for example, you could give a child a toy and he doesn't even look at the silly thing. But the moment, the moment you take it away, like, oh, oh, now you want it? Um, you kind of gain perspective and have a much better idea of how valuable something is uh, once we don't have it anymore. You know, like, when you, when you see the guy eating the last slice of pizza that you just refused. It's like, oh, what? how is he making it look so good now? Or you know, when your kid talks back to you, it's like, what, whatever happened to my baby? Or when you're at a funeral and you're reminded that death is waiting for everyone. Life is so, so precious. Adam and Eve had a relationship with God and enjoyed being in his presence more than anything else. In Genesis 3.8, when Adam and Eve hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, what do they do? They hide themselves from his presence. What that means is that they recognized God's presence and it was so normal for them to do that, to be in his presence. That when they had sinned, they knew instinctively that they were supposed to hide. And as darker sins enter the world, it says in Genesis 4.26, At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Why? Because they no longer had that special relationship with God. They knew that life wasn't meant to be this broken and hard. They needed saving. Imagine how hard it would have been, especially for Adam and Eve, because 
they're the ones who had directly experienced God's presence. So when we put two and two together, what we get is that Adam and Eve, if they had kept on obeying, they, then at some point, they would have been rewarded with eternal life. And that life would have come from God himself. And they would have been guaranteed to enjoy God's presence forever. See, eternal life and God cannot be separated. You cannot be immortal and be without God. When you think about this, because who gives eternal life? God. Human beings are made in the image of God. But they disobeyed, and sin not only led to death, but also a separation from God's presence in the Garden of Eden. And despite the punishment of death, incredibly, we already see God's grace at work, because they're still alive. When we fast forward to Noah's time, sin has filled the world to the point where God decides to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. This is a world that is the opposite of Eden. It's a sort of anti-creation. It goes fully against what God had intended. So it, it only makes sense to destroy everything. And God al almost does, but he doesn't. Because after the Great Flood, the world's population is eight. You have Noah, his three sons, and their wives. But why didn't God destroy everyone in the flood, or even before in the garden? It's because as God punished sin in the garden, holding back his full wrath, God also promised a savior who would defeat sin, Satan, and death. And so the rest of the Old Testament begins this epic quest throughout history to look for the Messiah who will not only reverse the curse of sin, but also restore mankind's relationship with God and allow us to be in his presence. And it's in this context that the Old Testament sets the stage for God's people, who seem, by the way, really obsessed with two things, forgiveness of sins and being in God's presence, the way to eternal life. The Old Testament progressively reveals more and more about this great reversal towards eternal life. In Deuteronomy 30, before the Israelites enter the Promised Land, Moses reminds them how to live as God's people. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days. On one side, God's people can love God, obey his commands, and receive blessing and life. On the other hand, there's idolatry, disobedience, which leads to curse and death. And does this sound familiar? It's the Garden of Eden all over again. In terms of relationship, the Israelites were handpicked by God to be in a covenantal relationship with him. In terms of sin, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would perform rituals to remove their sin. 
In terms of presence, the Israelites had a tabernacle and then a temple. And God's, <clears throat> excuse me, God's presence would come down as a cloud of glory into the Holy of Holies just for his people. And they had a choice to choose life through love, obedience, and trusting God. And it seems like mankind is getting closer to you know, the good old garden days. But if you read through the Old Testament, it becomes quite clear uh, that humans simply cannot do good in God's eyes. And this has been the state of mankind since the fall. But there's hope. There's hope. See, the Bible is showing that mankind, including God's own people, the Israelites, is spiritually dead. Which was why they kept failing to choose life in God. And there's hope because God is going to, through divine intervention, give the spiritual life that they didn't have. In Ezekiel 36, we just read this. God promises through the prophet Ezekiel, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the promise of spiritual rebirth and God's spirit living in us. In other words, God is promising that he will give his eternal life to his people. He will make a way for mankind to stop rebelling and start obeying, to love God and remain in his presence. And so if you bring all the pieces together again, eternal life is to be in a life-giving relationship with God in his presence forever. You see that? You see how the entire Bible tells a story of how God had always, even before the fall, even before the fall, God has been set on giving mankind the blessing of eternal life, being in his presence. And this eternal life comes from God nowhere else. And when our sins clearly got in the way, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. The good news is that we can finally have eternal life. We can finally have a relationship that God considered worthy, worthy of the death and punishment of his son. And so it's through Christ alone that we can finally return to God's presence, a presence that was forbidden because of our sins. So now that we understand that eternal life is God's gift of a never-ending life that comes when we are one with him in his presence, we have to seriously ask ourselves, when is eternal life? When can we enjoy this relationship and presence with our creator? Eternal life 
is, is now. We have it right now. Okay, we still, we still cannot experience the fullness of eternal life that's promised with our resurrection, right? We still can't love and obey God perfectly or live forever and always be in the fullness of his presence. But who did? Jesus did, and he still does. When Jesus came to this world, he was sent to be the source of eternal life, so he cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He saw mankind dying of spiritual thirst, and he offered himself, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in him, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. God will give so much life that we won't be able to contain it. If you promise a man dying of thirst that you will give him more water than he can imagine, does that promise save him? No. God didn't give us only a promise to get us through this life. We're not believing in a promise right now, but still dying. We don't enter God's presence and have a life-giving relationship with him after we die. We have eternal life now, already. When we put our faith in Jesus, it's because we already have the Holy Spirit in us. Remember that when Jesus was on earth, the Spirit of God descended from heaven like a dove and filled him so that the humanity of Jesus was in this constant communion with the Spirit. And it's that same Spirit that's given to us and is now living inside every believer. God is literally with us right now. It's not because of this building. It's not, it's not because of our pastors or the worship team or the good things that we do and the tithing that we give. It's because we believe in Jesus. We don't need the Holy of Holies anymore because our bodies are right now the temple of the living God. Jesus is our high priest interceding for us. People of God, believe now that the Holy Spirit is in you now and that you have direct access to God now. You're God's creation now. Spiritual beings able to see and live in a spiritual reality. Praise God that even though this world is broken, it still is. And we're still in darkness. But wherever we go, we can be in God's presence. And what does the Bible say about how to experience eternal life? How do you experience that? Before anything else, the most important thing is to believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and that he came to die for your sins. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so if you're not yet following Christ and if you've been skeptical, cautious, burdened, then hear this. There is a God who created this world, and who created you, and who has a greater purpose for your life. 
and you can't see him, but you can hear the good news. The good news is that Jesus died so that you can live. And he's saying to you now, come to me. And for those who believe, the Apostle John has two simple instructions from today's passage. Now, the first instruction is to let the gospel abide in you. If you can look at 1 John 2.24, it says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Isn't that a funny way to put it? It's, it's a little weird. Let what you heard from the beginning. The important thing here is that there is a beginning. You see, when the apostles proclaimed the gospel and Jesus' teachings, there was spiritual rebirth and transformation. In other words, what the people heard led to a new beginning. And so think about this. Has the gospel given you a new beginning? And if it has, then rest assured that the same gospel can sustain you for the rest of your lives. God's word of truth are the words of eternal life. So when we lose our passion, it can rekindle our hearts. When we're depressed, it can lift our spirits. When we're burnt out, it can give us rest. When we give up, it gives us strength. When we're haunted by anxiety, it can give us peace. When we no longer want to follow God anymore, and we just find it so hard to love other people, the gospel can give us God's love again and again and again. Amen. What does it mean to let something abide in you? When John uses the word abide, he's not introducing a new word or idea. Jesus is also used abide a lot in his teachings, especially John 15. But John does use this word more than any other New Testament writer. And when he does use this word, there's almost always a sense of interaction and relationship. And this is the case for verse 24. So remember when, John, when, when Jesus says uh, that he is the vine? What, abide in me and I in you. So if A abides in B, then B will abide in A. And this means that there's this internal, continuous, this interacting, personal relationship between A and B. And it would result in something like giving and receiving, like knowing and being known, loving and being loved, all towards a deeper relationship. As I kept observing my father slowly change, no longer shouting at me or my mom, but instead being gentle and submissive out of repentance, I started to question my hate towards him. Because the more, the more I felt and saw his love, the more I knew that I had to stop 
trying to hate a man who no longer existed. And I'm still trying. But because I let my father abide in me, I began to abide in him. Once this dynamic started, it was the beginning of a beautiful, deepened relationship. And this is how the apostle commands believers to let the gospel continue to abide in them. Keep interacting and having a living relationship with the gospel truth. The gospel doesn't change. It doesn't lose value or power over time. And the reason why we sometimes feel like it does is because we've stopped letting it abide in us. If we want to be gospel-centered, we have to actively hold on to the gospel of truth and make sure it's being lived out in our lives. And that means reading the gospel, finding life in the good news in the Bible, meditating on it, praying on it. It means hearing gospel-centered sermons during your commute. It means meeting other believers, hearing their testimonies, and being amazed that God is at work. It means listening to a worship song instead of that other song which is preaching a different message. It means being extra gentle and kind and humble to the people we find it most difficult to show love to. It means praying out loud what you're thankful for every night, especially for salvation. It means wanting the people you see outside, the people you work with to be saved and growing that heart. It means reaching out and checking up on someone that you know needs it. It means looking for the good in someone when you find yourself judging because you know grace. It means sharing your testimony to others and pointing to God, proclaiming the gospel. Let the gospel abide in you day in and day out. What happens? What happens when we let the gospel abide in us? Verse 24 also says that you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. This isn't just a promise of the future, but a relationship that we can enjoy now. Okay, now what I've said so far might seem easy. Okay, believe in gospel, believe in Jesus. Check. Okay. Have a deep living interaction uh, with gospel truth. But the next instruction is where it might get hard for some of us. But John repeatedly mentions this throughout 1 John because Jesus is emphasizing this. And that's that in order to abide in God and experience eternal life, we have to obey God's word. See, we can't, we can say that we're actively believing in Jesus, but if we're not actively obeying his commandments, then we're not in a living relationship with God. If we're not actively obeying God's commandments, we're not in a living relationship with God, 
and a dead relationship is no relationship. Okay, back in college, um, before, before I met God, when I still thought I'd go to heaven and called myself a Christian, uh, I struggled a lot between uh, the pleasures that I wanted to pursue, and living life as a Christian. Uh, I wanted to drink and party, chase after women, be as vulgar as I could, and, and stick it to the man. And uh, don't worry, this is, this is not that. Okay? This is, I just love the color, okay? So it's okay. I also knew that all these pleasures weren't uh, the Christian thing to do. And so I asked my mom one day, Mama, there's all these things that I want to do, but I also know that I'm not supposed to do them. And if being a Christian means cutting out these things from my life, then isn't, isn't the Christian life just really boring and hard? And I only realized, um, as I was preparing for the sermon, uh, just how hard uh, it must have been for my mom to hear uh, her one and only son ask that question. But she had the wisdom and the courage uh, to tell me. She said, you can't understand now because you're not born again yet. But one day, when you are, you'll, you'll want to follow God's word. Right? And so you'll want to cut those things out of your life. And it'll be easy. And she was right. I, ha I had no idea what she was talking about. But I do now, because if you've heard the gospel and being born again of the Spirit, you believe in Jesus, then you've experienced God's love. And in response to that love, you'll want to obey. You'll want to love him back. And in John 14, 23, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And so for God, trusting obedience is the greatest expression of love. And the gospel is a model of that obedience. The Son obeyed the will of the Father. And we have to understand that Jesus obeyed the Father in order to be born on earth. And from that moment on, until his death, his humanity was put in this struggle of obedience, doing the Father's will. See, Jesus experienced the wickedness of mankind. He met the people who would plan to kill him. He ate with the person who would betray him. Imagine how difficult it would have been for Jesus to just be with sinners. But then his gut reaction was to have compassion for them. 
And it's his love for us, but more importantly, his love for the Father that kept him going to obey. He said, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Matthew 26, the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is praying to the Father that he wouldn't have to take our sins and die on the cross. But how does he end that prayer? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He prays two more times. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, unless I take the punishment of sin, then your will be done. Jesus didn't obey just to show us the perfect example of obedience. He obeyed the Father because there was no other way for salvation. And so the gospel is a model of obedience. And so while Adam failed to obey in the Garden of Eden, Jesus at Gethsemane showed his determination to succeed in obedience to the Father. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience that many were made righteous. The gospel is a model of obedience. And what are we to obey? Well, in 1 John, the apostle makes it clear, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. That's it. It's simple. But it's also black and white. And this may be hard to hear, but we cannot be deceiving ourselves about something as serious as eternal life. In 1 John 3.10, John says that it is clear who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. And hear this. The children of the devil, those who are not of God, are the people who are not practicing God's righteousness and do not love their brothers. So listen to this warning. I'll only say this once. If we're not continuously trying to obey God's commandments, of course, we'll fall short of God's standard and example. But if we're not wanting to and continuously trying, especially to love one another and keep forgiving one another, then we're not in a living relationship with God. There's nothing more serious than the business of eternal life. And later on in 1 John 3, 23 to 24, John sums up brilliantly everything I've said so far. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. And so when we abide in God and God abides in us, we are one with him, communing with him in his presence. And we get to experience that beautiful, sustaining, and mysterious relationship that the Father, Son, and Spirit have. We get to have that now. When we believe in Christ, let the gospel truth abide in us, 
and when we obey God's word, loving him and one another. And so the whole story of the Bible shows that mankind was first created to be in God's presence and experiencing life from God. And when we lost that life as a result of sin, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, bringing us back into his presence. And so can you see that if throughout all of history, mankind has been crying out for life, 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 then the whole scripture has been proclaiming Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Whatever we did wrong, whatever we didn't have, and whatever we couldn't do to get that eternal life, Jesus is fulfilled for us. Our disobedience and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And our sins that got in the way, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, our unworthy unrighteousness. For our sake, he made him to be sin. When you know sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our physical death? An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Our spiritual death? He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And our separation from God? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you see how Jesus has done everything and given us everything for us to have eternal life? No wonder all we have to do is believe in him. I could go on admiring all I found about Jesus and eternal life, but I believe that the most important thing for us to take away about eternal life is that Jesus is eternal life. See, Jesus gives us eternal life when we believe in him and obey him and have a relationship with him, but all of this is possible because Jesus himself is eternal life. In 1 John 5.20, and we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So justification, sanctification, immortality, the resurrection. These aren't just promised states or separate things. These are all part of one package, one gift, Jesus Christ himself. 
when God promises us eternal life, he's giving us Jesus, all that he is and has. That's eternal life. And this is why Jesus offers himself, saying, come to me and drink. I know how thirsty you've been in this wilderness, trying to quench your thirst for purpose, meaning, satisfaction. This is why Jesus says, come to me, and I'll give you rest. I know how tired you've been without my Sabbath, where you work, work, and work, and then die. When we think about how God had originally wanted to give mankind eternal life, living forever in his presence as a reward, but then how he tells his son to give himself to death as a sacrifice, and then to give himself to resurrected life as a gift, don't we see how much God loves us and how faithful he is to his promise, how merciful and forgiving he is. So brothers and sisters, please, please, please don't walk away from today and forget that you have eternal life. Please remember this when you go to the potluck and you eat lunch, when you go home, when you go to bed, when you wake up in the morning, when you go to work, Know that you are in God's presence. And when you face uncertainty and the storms of life come at you, remember that you and I have a precious thing that nobody can take away. And when you fall in sin and you want to cover yourselves from the shame like Adam and Eve did, don't hide. Remember that the purpose of your life, of my life, is to be in God's presence. And he is welcoming us into his arms, knowing, knowing that we're sinners. So go out today, abiding in God, and know that you have Jesus, our eternal life, now and forever.